Welcome to the Inquiring Mind Podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Benjamin Hett. Benjamin Hett is a historian and writer who teaches at Hunter College, the City University of New York, and at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City. He earned his BA in Political Science and English Literature from the University of Alberta, then earned a JD from the University of Toronto. He later received his MA in History from the University of Toronto and a PhD from Harvard University. On this podcast, we discuss his latest books, The Nazi Menace and The Death of Democracy. We also touch on the insurrection, the application of history to our current political climate, the difference between our current political leaders and those of the early 20th century, the difference between Nazism and Bolshevism, as well as other topics. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And also, please consider subscribing on YouTube, where you can see the full video version of the podcast. I appreciate all of your support, and I look forward to bringing you a lot more fascinating conversations. So now, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Benjamin Hett. Benjamin Hett, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, As you know, when I first contacted you, I tried to take your class in college and didn't didn't get a chance to because of some bureaucratic stuff. And uh, the next best thing is to obviously get to talk to you on my podcast. So <laughs> thank, <laughs> to, thank you for coming on. Uh, well, thanks. We'll, we'll make up for last time, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I expect an exam after this podcast. Of course. Um, <laughs> uh, before we get into your two books that I have, well, you have a lot more books, but your two most recent books, one right here, The Death of Democracy, and your most recent, The Nazi Menace. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Give a brief introduction. Sure, okay, uh, let me see. So I was born in Rochester, New York. My mom's uh, from New York City, uh, but she married a Canadian who whisked her away to Western Canada weeks after I was born. So I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta in Western Canada. Um, but I returned to the United States to go to graduate school, uh, do a PhD, and uh, I have actually now returned to the ancestral homeland of New York City, where I live very happily. Um, Great. I passed through a brief uh, time as a lawyer, wasn't too happy being a lawyer, which goes a long way to explaining why I'm a history professor now. Um, yeah, I, I read that, that you were a, a, a lawyer for a hot second for four years that felt like eight, correct? That's, yep, that's it. Um, why did you, what, what about the legal career did you not like? <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that there were three things uh, I didn't like, any two of which I think would have been fine, but all three together were not. Um, the first is that uh, being a lawyer, at least the kind of work I was doing, it was like corporate litigation, is very, very time consuming. If you do that, that's kind of all you do. So that's one thing. But two, it was also very, very boring to me. I frankly didn't really care if company A had been shafted by company B on a deal or something. Um, 
So, and, but C also very stressful for all kinds of reasons. You're under a lot of pressure from a lot of different directions when you're a lawyer, especially I think a young lawyer. So, you know, I could have taken the stress in the hours if it were fascinating. Um, I could have taken the boredom if it was nine to five and I could go do something else, you know, but all of that together, no. So I spent most of my time as a lawyer thinking, what else could I possibly do? And one day it finally hit me that what I really wanted to do was study history. Yeah, I, I only ask because I myself am studying to get into law school. So I'm going to studying for the exam. And every time I talk to a lawyer, I ask, well, why should I be a lawyer? And universally, the answer is no, <laughs> uh, which makes me oddly dig down deeper and make me want to be a lawyer more. That's, I mean, you know what, I actually, I don't discourage anybody. This may sound weird, but I never, when students ask me about it, for instance, I never discourage anybody from going to law school. It's actually a very good education to get. And it's an education you can do a lot with. I mean, if you, if you're like most of us, frankly, and you hate being a lawyer, you can do a lot of other things with it. Um, it gives you a kind of basic grounding and, and a set of skills, um, you know, that you can use in all kinds of ways. So it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And uh, obviously, you know, the legal career didn't pan out for the reasons you just stated, and you went on to history. But do you remember when uh, you first fell in love with history? Was there something in particular? Was there a teacher? <laughs> um, you know, I think probably the answer to that is I was probably when I was about five. Uh, you know, my, uh, my parents uh, were in a way both um, history teachers. My dad was a history professor, and my parents met when they were both studying history in graduate school. Um, so I sort of grew up with it. Um, and I can remember being a very little kid. Um, we went on a family vacation to Britain and we went to see, well, the things you see in Britain, right? All those kind of history related tourist sites. What I really remember having an impact on me was going to see um, an old ship called the HMS Victory, which was the flagship of Admiral Horatio Nelson at the famous Battle of Trafalgar and uh, 1805 and Nelson was shot and killed in the course of the battle and to me at the age of five this all seemed sort of incredibly cool and incredibly romantic and incredibly fascinating and I kind of uh, developed a fixation on Nelson and on that battle and it kind of went from there I think um, you know whether it's genes or environment I, I think I had it both ways in terms of history so I think from a very little kid I had it when I was, you know, a little bit older in elementary school, I was just an unbelievable geek. You know, in fifth grade, I was reading Churchill's memoirs from World War II. Like, that's the kind of kid I was. So, you know, I looking back, I think, what else could I possibly have been, really? I mean, you know, this 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 is the thing. Uh, and and when you acquired your degree, did you were you excited about becoming a teacher, a professor? Yeah. 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 And I, uh, what what has that what what has that experience as uh, being a professor taught you, and uh, what do you enjoy most about it? Oh, that's a great question. You know what? I honestly I think um, when you're a professor, if you really are sort of paying attention, your students teach you at least as much as you teach them, and quite possibly more. I I absolutely love the students I work with. Um, uh, you know, the students I teach at Hunter College or, you know, the graduate students I work with at my other gig at the CUNY Graduate Center, you know, um, but maybe especially the Hunter College students, you know, they tend to be, um, you know, uh, working class New York City kids. Many of them have like an immigrant background in their family. They tend to be, you know, as the saying goes, poor, smart and hungry. Um, 
they, you know, I'm just constantly amazed at the idealism and the ambition and the brains of so many of the students that I have the privilege to teach. And, you know, one of the things I love about my job is I sort of get to soak that up. I mean, I, they really do teach me all kinds of things about life and where they come from and what they experience. Um, and sometimes I'm able to help them in some ways because there are paths forward that I'm familiar with that I can sort of be a mentor to them on. And it's, uh, it's deeply satisfying. Yeah. And is there something, in, somebody in particular, or maybe a few students, what, what has been, uh, can you provide some examples of what some students have taught you uh, that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have thought of? Um, you know, it, um, there are probably a lot of answers to that question. I, I think a lot of it is, you know, because so many of the students have a background that's so different from mine, um, I've, I feel I've gotten a lot of insight into um, what it's like to come from another country and come to New York City and maybe at the beginning not speak English or maybe your parents don't speak English in the way um, the young people have to navigate that environment. I guess the other thing I would say is sometimes I am um, truly humbled and I don't mean in the BS way that politicians sometimes say that when what they really mean is they're thrilled. I mean truly humbled at the courage that some of my students have. I remember about 10 years ago, I had a young woman in a couple of my classes who um, in the course of literally a few weeks, um, her older sister who had young children was diagnosed with a brain tumor and then died. And then her father suddenly died of a heart attack, literally in a few weeks. And I said to her, look, you know, this is an incredible bad run of stuff happening to you. If you need to have some kind of arrangements, we can work out whatever we need to do in terms of finishing the class. And she was absolutely determined. She said, nope, you know, I want to just go forward. I want to get the work done. I want to do the class. I want to get the grade. And she did. And she got an A and she took a class from me the following semester and got an A again. And I thought, you know, that mixture of toughness and courage, um, I don't know if I would have had that when I was, you know, 19, 20. I don't know if I have that now. But anyway, it's incredible to see it. It's inspiring. Wow. Um, okay. So before, um, let, so let's let's analyze uh, the two books that I showed before, The, the Death of Democracy and The Nazi Menace. Uh, can you give a brief introduction as to why you wrote uh, The Death of Democracy and then an intro as to why you wrote The Nazi Menace? Sure. Okay. So um, The Death of Democracy, which is about the process um, by which democracy failed in Germany in the 20s and 30s and Hitler came to power, um, is a book that I started working on probably pretty much to the day, on the day that Donald Trump was inaugurated as president. This is not a coincidence. Um, when Trump got elected, you know, the previous November, I had been thinking a little bit about comparisons between Germany then, uh, Germany in the 30s and, you know, America in 2016. And I sort of put together a proposal for, for some publishers making comparisons. And, you know, people who work in publishing houses are, are smart people. And virtually every editor looked at it and said, well, 
you know, Ben clearly knows some stuff about Germany in the 20s and 30s, but maybe not so much about American politics in the 21st century. So it feels kind of uneven and it doesn't work. But then one very smart editor said all of that, but then said, so why don't we just have Ben write a book that's about how the Nazis came to power with the comparisons that are relevant, maybe sort of there between the lines. And I got really excited about that idea. And that then is what ended up being the death of democracy. It's a telling of the process of the Nazis coming to power in which I was keeping my eye on the things that were bothering me, that were worrying me, the things that I think are um, alarming parallels between Germany then and America now. But it's never, it's never explicit. The name Trump doesn't appear in the book. Um, but I think there's plenty there between the lines for those who, who care to see it. Hmm. And um, so, so in that book, I think one of the, obviously the overarching themes and I guess part of the interest in the book is the fact that you could compare it to today's events or uh, definitely the events of four years ago, but in some oddly, in some odd way, it's probably more prescient now than it was before. Uh, So you, I read an article that you read for the, uh, that you wrote, sorry, for the LA times where you said that the real threat of the, for example, the insurrection on in January was not uh, the fact that these people stormed the Capitol. It's it's what, in your opinion? Yeah, uh, I, I think you're exactly right. And um, I, frankly, I am more worried now than I was in 2017 about where we're going. Um, and yeah, I mean, the point I was making in that article is that January 6th is obviously pretty eye-catching. And it was terrible, but I mean, those people who stormed the Capitol are frankly, basically clowns. They might be somewhat dangerous clowns in the sense that they could kill people. They could have killed a lot more people than they did, but clowns like that are not gonna overthrow a state. And in that sense, it's very much like Hitler's famous Beer Hall Putsch of 1923, which was similarly a bit clownish and incompetent and was not going to overthrow the state. But, and and this is the worrying part, there is a worry here because a state can be overturned by people from inside, you know, important elements of government corroding the laws, corroding the norms, um, corroding what are sometimes called the guardrails of democracy and, you know, transferring power bit by bit away from, you know, the people to themselves, basically. And this is exactly what we're seeing right now. I mean, the the Republicans are now engaging in a kind of slow motion, creeping coup d'etat. I'm very, very worried about what's going to happen in the midterm elections in in 2022 and very much in the presidential elections of 2024, because it seems the Republican Party has been increasingly taken over by people whose definition of a fair election is one that they win. And their definition of an unfair election is one they don't win. And they're increasingly being blatant about um, legal steps to overturn or even prevent (laughs) a free election from happening. And in this sense, it's quite like um, the process by which Hitler consolidated his power. Um, What what Hitler did in his first few months in office is sometimes called a legal revolution or a legal takeover of power. Its legality is a bit debatable, but it is true that Hitler didn't rely on violence for the most part 
to consolidate his power and to turn himself into a dictator. He relied on legal instruments and on people accepting those legal instruments. And we have uh, now, I think, a real danger uh, of going through the same process. Yeah, so maybe to stick with the topic of maybe the current events, um, the one question that I've always had after that event in January is, is one that I still have today. How do you use history's lessons, the ones that you talk about in your book, uh, right, the death of democracy? Um, and how can it help us deal with some of the concerns, maybe legitimate concerns that people have uh, on the other side of the aisle mm -hmm. with the 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump and with those as insurrectionists um, in January? So, um, I mean, that's, that's the key question that you're asking. It's the most important question and in a way it's the hardest to answer. Um, but I think a couple of things. I mean, one thing that history can do is broaden our appreciation of what can happen and broaden our appreciation perhaps of what we can do in the face of what happens. I mean, history is nothing other than the record of everything human beings have gone through. And the more you know about that, the more you know about what human beings, what human societies have gone through, the more you know what the possibilities are both for maybe bad things that can happen and for things that you can do to counteract bad things. Um, and your question also points to something, which is that um, even something like this is not necessarily black and white. So in the sense that, you know, Germans in the early 1930s, for the most part, were supporting Hitler or supporting the Nazis insofar as they did. Um, the Nazis only ever, it's important to keep in mind, only ever got about a third of the vote in a free election. But insofar as people were supporting the Nazis, they were doing so out of grievances that were real and weren't crazy. Um, I think sometimes people tend to imagine that you know Germans must have voted for Hitler because they liked what he was going to do in another six or 10 years, you know, that they, they were voting for war, they were voting for the Holocaust, they weren't. Um, one of the points I really try to make in that first book is really, if you boil it down, what the Nazis were uh, in terms of getting people to vote for them, they were a protest movement against the effects of globalization, against the effects of trade, um, against the effects of global finance, which were related to the um, a lot of the aftermath of World War I. And lots of Germans had really real grievances about what was happening to them. In a sense, the world had put them in a bad place, you know, economically and politically. Um, and that's rather similar to, I think, at least many of the people who support Trump. The world has put them in a bad place. There's no doubt about it. Um, the problem is their response is, you know, A, actually not going to solve their problems. I mean, their response in the sense of voting for somebody like Trump or voting for someone like Hitler, that's not going to fix their problems. And B, it's probably going to create more problems that, you know, are yet to come. Um, but the grievance is real. And, you know, one thing I think that people who are not supporters of the GOP in its current form uh, have to think about is policies that can meet the real grievances that people have that are causing them to vote for Trump in a way 
that's not taking us, you know, into some kind of white nationalist authoritarian regime as opposed to a democracy. And how much of that responsibility is on um, people on the on the on the left, right? Because look, I, I've had a I've had a guest on the show that said, well, essentially elections have consequences and no need to coddle the losing side. There's always going to be a losing side. And not that you don't have to listen to their concerns, but they lost, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, But the concerning thing about this is the ideas that are out there in the world, the the legitimate concerns that these people had, not all of them, but again, you don't get 75 million people to vote for you for no reason. Like if there, if there are no problems, nobody's going to vote for you. Right. Exactly. so I, I've, I haven't gotten like a legit uh, explanation of what people want to do to address these concerns. Right. And I'm not I'm not even talking I'm not talking about the, the, the maybe the outlandish ones, the uh, maybe the some of the racial comments. But I'm, I am talking about the ones you just mentioned, global, the concern of globalization, people losing their jobs. And uh, the problem is that I it seems to me sometimes that people uh maybe that are quote unquote elites or people that call themselves elites are completely content to ignore these issues because well now we, we're back to normal with you know a new president and the right person won and the wrong person lost that's it yeah. right so um and that way i think we're not learning from history because People didn't listen to the seem to care about the concerns that people in the the, the Nazis had, um, and we're not doing enough to listen to people that were on the losing side of this presidential election. Yeah, well, you know, Stanley, I think um, when we're done this conversation and we have the exam, I think you're going to do quite well. Uh, as, as, I mean, I agree with the point you're making completely, and as a matter of fact, um, something else that I wrote recently, I had a piece in Mother Jones magazine in January, um, speaking right to this point and to change the historical analogy a bit, to stay with Germany, but to move forward about a decade and a half. um, I think an example that we would all do well to think about um, is the example of uh, West Germany after World War II under the leadership of its first chancellor, Konrad Adenauer. Um, And the thing here is, Adenauer was really um, unsentimental, pragmatic, and cunning about the realities of the situation he was in. Adenauer was himself very much a a Democrat, small d Democrat believer in democracy. But he knew when he came into office as chancellor that he was running a country that had just been through a 12-year dictatorship and still had a lot of people who still in their hearts supported that dictatorship. And so Adenauer's mission was to make a democracy out of this country where most of the people were tainted by Nazism. And the way he did that is, I think, you know, something worth thinking about. And, and basically, it's a mixture of um, trying to formulate economic uh, policies, which will spread prosperity out. Um, and as he often put it, Adenauer often put it, drawing a line under the past and, and kind of offering a deal to people who had been Nazis, the deal being, all right, look, we'll forget what you did if you sign on to the democracy now, you know, 
Like we, we, will, we will not prosecute that many people, even if you were a war criminal. We'll kind of let it go if you agree to work for the democracy now. Um, and all the while, you know, Adenauer was developing you know, economic policies, he was developing trade networks for West Germany and so on that um, brought the country into economic networks and ensured that uh, what happened was what Germans still call the economic miracle um, of the late 40s and, and 50s, a time of spectacular economic growth, which is always a bit of a sedative, if I could put it that way. I mean, if, if people are doing fairly well economically, they're on the whole, they're not going to, you know, rise up in some kind of violent political activism. Um, there are always a few who will, but it's not going to be a big number. If you have, you know, millions of people who are in an economically bleak position, then you're looking at the ingredients that can create uh, widespread, violent, you know, racist, etc., extreme politics. And when I'm and I think this point has real application to the situation we're in now in terms of trying to sort of forget, frankly, some of the nastier things that happened under Trump and try to build bridges. I think people on the liberal or left side of politics need to think about building bridges to people who are among that 74 million who voted for Trump, not all of whom. I mean, there are some there who are going to be permanently unreachable, like basically the folks who were actually breaking down the windows of the Capitol are probably for the most part unreachable. But there, are, there have to be millions of others who are not. The, the simple fact that Biden's approval rating is around 55% or so at the moment indicates that there are lots of people who voted for Trump who are approving of him now. And so, you know, there is a path to reach people a bit. And I think that's the path that needs to be taken. I think so far Biden's doing a pretty good job of that, actually. I think, I think he's playing strategically what I would advise him to do if I were, you know, if he wanted to hear from a historian of Germany about what he should do with the United States, I'd be saying, yeah, you're pretty much doing it, sir. So, you know, I think uh, so far so good, but we'll see where this leads. Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll try to get off the, the Trump, uh, the subject of Trump for a little bit, but do you see the conversation about Trump in this country more about him and the way he spoke and maybe to a lot of people, it was the perception that, look, this guy is going to go and get stuff done and get these deals done. Something, almost yeah. something he said before. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and less about the fact that this is the Republican party. Right. And um, it, do you see that this is more, I think Neil Ferguson said that, you know, in the 1900s, the late 19, uh, the late 19th century, sorry, um, there were populist leaders similar to Trump. So he's mm -hmm. less, he's less maybe Hitler and more um, like a populist leader that just got people riled up. Yeah, you know, I've always actually made the point very strongly that my argument is not that Trump is Hitler. Right. I mean, those two individuals could hardly be more different, frankly, uh, other than a couple of superficial similarities involving low self-esteem and narcissism probably would be the main ones. Um, but other than that, I mean, I, as much as I dislike Trump and I'll take a backseat to no one in my dislike of that man, but it would be ridiculous to say that he embodies evil on the scale of Hitler. He really does not. Um, 
part of the reason for that is, frankly, Trump is, among other things, extraordinarily stupid and extraordinarily incompetent. Uh, whereas Hitler was good at some things and was pretty smart. Uh, if he hadn't been pretty smart and good at some things, he wouldn't have gotten where he got because he didn't start with the advantages that Trump had. Um, you know, Hitler had a cunning and Hitler had an ability to win people over. Hitler had acting talent, which was quite considerable. Hitler could sort of be a bit of a chameleon. He could be different kinds of people when he needed to be. Trump has none of that. Trump is just Trump. He just, I think he can't help being what he is. He just is what he is. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people attribute to him a lot of political savvy and cunning in winning. I don't. I think he, he had dumb luck in the sense that a particular way that he is with a particular package of grievances happens to resonate with a lot of people, but it's not calculated on his part. He's just lucky that that's how it goes because he just is who he is in any context. He can't calculate he can't think strategically, you know, even in his own interest. He shoots himself in the foot all the time, you know, basically anytime he opens his mouth practically. Um, so they're, they're very, very different people. And I think Trump just kind of basically wants to have fun and ride around on Air Force One and have people tell him he's great. I don't think, he, I mean, he certainly doesn't have a vision of a kind of future state he wants to create the way Hitler did. So there, there are very significant differences. My argument is that at a deeper level, there are structural similarities um, between Germany then and America now, which are the things that worry me. Right. And maybe one of the similarities that I do see between them, and I, I agree with you, I don't like the comparison myself, um, is that when they both got into some kind of power, people thought that they could change them, right? There were, yeah. there were the talks with Trump, for example, that... Um, once he feels the weight of the presidency, he's going to change, which is the, you can't expect somebody to, to flip a switch and just change like that so radically overnight. Yeah. Um, it humbles a lot of people, but doesn't humble everyone. Well, um, it's one of those things that works almost all the time. I mean, usually yeah. people do grow into the office, right, even right. people you wouldn't necessarily expect. It does happen. I mean, I, even Biden and Biden was someone who has abilities and has been around a long time, but even Biden has changed a lot in office, I think. I mean, it, the office does things to most people. It's just going back to what I said before, Trump's just Trump. I mean, he can't help being what he is. So the office didn't do right. anything to him. And when Hitler got into power, people thought they could change him. Yep. And then they thought when the time was right, they would just, you know, tell him to step aside and let the, the real people run the country or do whatever they want. Yep. Um, didn't quite work out that way, as we know now. Uh, why, why didn't it work out that way? Well, uh, because Hitler was cunning um, in a way that those people did not appreciate. And there was quite a bit at work here. And, and here there is a little bit of a parallel to our recent experience. Um, Hitler was underestimated by people who had a lot more education, a lot more social standing. You know, the people who held power in Germany by and large at that time, whether it be in the high ranks of the army, whether it be in the civil service, whether it be in business, these tended to be people um, of aristocratic or of upper middle class families with good educations. You know, many had been officers, sometimes senior officers in the first world war. Um, these are people who assume a leader has to look like them, 
has to speak like them, has to have their social background, their prestige, their education. And, he, and Hitler had none of that, of course. Hitler came from a humble background, had very little formal education, made grammatical mistakes in German, um, which is not hard to do, by the way, but for a native speaker, you know. Um, so they, they look at Hitler and they see that. They see this kind of lower class clown uh, and they assume that gentlemen like themselves can easily manage him. And they miss, basically because of their own prejudices, they miss Hitler's cunning. They don't see it until it's too late. They see it once it's too late. Um, and Hitler in a way played into that sometimes. Like when it suited him, he would sort of play along and he would sort of be what they thought he was until he had maneuvered around so he could sort of knife them in the back basically and get rid of them. And especially his first um, five or so years in office are really the story of him bit by bit kind of maneuvering and knifing people and getting them out of his way until, you know, really by, by the spring of 1938, he's in a position where almost the last internal adversaries are gone. And, and he's, he's run rings around them and, you know, maneuvered them out of power as much as they think they are restraining him. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've really enjoyed about your book is the fact that uh, there is a tendency among maybe historians and, and among uh, people that teach history on all levels to teach it as inevitable mm -hmm. that the Nazis rose to power. Um, that's a little bit of a case of hindsight bias, right? Like, or hindsight, just knowing the fact that this happened, you're like, oh, it must have been inevitable. Yeah. But what I like about your book is you explain that there is actually no reason no, there are some legitimate reasons but uh germany has some of the best scientists some of the best artists some of the best musicians some of the best intellectuals in the world at the time and yet they uh, over the course of maybe a decade they would they would be they would succumb to this dark almost the dark side yeah. in nazism yeah um how is our teaching of history incorrect? And what, is it shaped in any way by people that wrote the histories at the time? Hmm. And that shapes our current understanding? Um, there's a couple of really great questions in there. Um, and actually, you're, you're, you're speaking right to a couple of my kind of core convictions in history, really. So let's take the first point. Um, by and large, I think there's very little in history that is inevitable. Um, and I think it is important, to me it's important when you look at history to remember that things happened because people made certain decisions that they didn't always have to make. Um, and certainly Hitler coming to power is one of those. That, that really didn't have to happen. It actually very nearly didn't happen. I mean, it, by, uh, you know, by the end of 1932, it was more likely to not happen than happen. And then decisions that certain people made that they didn't have to make, made it happen. Um, and I think that's really important. I think it's really important for all of us because all of us have some part in this. All of us make decisions about how we're gonna spend our time and, and what we're going to do. And our decisions have consequences. Um, I've been working a little bit lately with a great group called Teaching, uh, Teaching History on Ourselves, which is a group that works with educators um, to sort of use examples from history, to teach precisely this, to sort of teach in a sense, kind of moral responsibility 
for what we do because what we do has consequences. And that, that's something I deeply believe in. Um, your, your second point also is a great one. Um, so often what historians convey about the past is something that they have scooped up from a narrative that was around at the time that, uh, you know, that narrative or narratives may have had some political agenda at the time, or they may have been wrong for whatever reason at the time. But since often these narratives sort of survive in the records that come to us as historians, historians often kind of scoop them up and then recycle them. And then often later you find out that it's wrong. And actually almost every one of my books, to be honest, has sort of had that as its subtext. Um, I realized this actually when I was working on my third book, which was very much about that kind of process, um, I realized, oh my God, the last two were kind of about this same thing too. Like my, uh, in a way, in my mind, I must have a preoccupation because it's very much about narratives that go in there at the beginning and then get stuck and historians keep uh, recirculating them, even though in fact, if you look at it, the evidence might be quite different. Yeah, uh, maybe one of your books could be like a, a collection of myth busting. You <laughs> um, so one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the difference between Nazism and Bolshevism, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I read a lot of books on World War II, and we have this we have this tendency in the United States. I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong. I'm probably, I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, that Nazis are to the right and Bolsheviks are to the left, right? And, and in a lot of ways, the Nazis, Hitler himself saw it that way, right? He was yeah. the fight against Bolshevism, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but a lot of the, their tendencies are very similar, right? So um, their political actions are, the, are very similar. What, what is that distinction between Nazism and Bolshevism? Um, that's another great question. And it's, that's a highly, 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 highly contested uh, zone among historians. And actually, to some extent, out in our culture. I, I've noticed in recent years, um, the American right, like people like Dinesh D'Souza have really picked up the idea that Nazism is actually on the left because then they can use that as a brush to tar, you know, AOC, right? You can say, well, AOC is a Nazi, just like Hitler, and it's all on the left, which is about 90% nonsense with a little nugget of truth in there somewhere. Um, um, so yeah, let, let's take the Nazis first. So, you know, Hitler's party, we sometimes forget this, but the full name of his party was the National Socialist German Workers' Party. So if you took the national off that, if you had something called um, the Socialist German Workers' Party, you would have to assume this is a party of the left, probably the Marxist left. Um, you add the national on there and it gets complicated because in traditional political theory, nationalism and socialism are supposed to be opposite uh, and irreconcilable. And the Nazi project, like the fascist project in general, was very much about actually finding a, a uniting element between the left and the right in the sense, what well, I should say between socialism and, and nationalism in the sense that they were looking for a more inclusive and egalitarian politics that would still be nationalist at a time when socialists were expressly internationalist and you know, 
denied, in a sense, the legitimacy of nationalism. So this is kind of the innovation of Mussolini and Hitler, like looking for this egalitarian but nationalist politics. Um, where does that sit right and left? I mean, the answer to that is it's a moving target. If you look at both Mussolini's fascism and, and Hitler's Nazism in their earlier years, you can see more elements that are quite identifiably left. But the thing is, as they got power and as they consolidated power, the process really was to exclude the left elements and focus on the right elements. So, you know, for Hitler, the classic uh, example of this is how he got along with his brown shirts, the stormtroopers, which were actually, this sounds weird, but the, the stormtroopers were sort of the hotbed of what we call left-wing Nazism, more kind of egalitarian, anti-elite, anti-capitalist Nazism. If it lived anywhere, it lived in the stormtroopers, weirdly enough. Um, and you know, when the Nazis come to power, Hitler basically crushes them. And when he does that, he's kind of crushing the left element in Nazi ideology. And then if you look at, again, in practice, if you look at what the Nazis did, who did Hitler persecute? Well, right off the bat, he wasn't really persecuting Jews much in the early phase. Who he was really going after was communists and social democrats. If you look at, if you wanna know who's in a concentration camp in the first few years the Nazis are in power, the answer is communists and social democrats, basically. He's, he's going after the left. So Nazism becomes much more clearly and unambiguously a, a movement and a regime of the right. Now, Bolshevism, it, it almost, I think, has the opposite trajectory uh, because, you know, Russian Bolshevism clearly starts as a movement of the left, no question about that. Um, in power, especially under Stalin, uh, in some ways, it starts to move to a much more nationalist model. And, you know, the historian who I think has really made this point effectively is Timothy Snyder, uh, especially in his book, Bloodlands. You know, he's got a, a line in there, which, uh, which I've quoted to in my stuff, where it's at one point during the terror in the late 30s, when Stalin's uh, secret police is uh, rounding up uh, people from various ethnic groups and basically slaughtering them, especially uh, ethnic Poles who are Soviet citizens. And Stalin writes to a secret police chief and says something like, good, keep rounding up and exterminating this Polish filth, which sounds like something that could have come out of the mouth of Hitler. And what it speaks to is, you know, Stalin's regime in power starts to look pretty much like Hitler's regime in the sense that it's it's targeting people on the basis of nationality or like national identification or origins uh, in a highly brutal way. So, you know, I think for both regimes, in some ways, the ideological roots become less important as they become dictatorships and as dictatorships, they sort of do dictatorship things, um, unrestrainedly violent for the most part, dictatorship things. Yeah. Um, I haven't read Dinesh D'Souza's books. I've, I've heard him speak on YouTube just out of curiosity. Um, is one of the arguments he gives for the similarities, the economic similarities, because uh, both did not like private business yeah. and they right. wanted to keep a tight grip on tight, uh, private business. Is that the 10% overlap? That... So, um, you know, I, I have to be honest, I have not, 
I, I don't feel reading a book by Dinesh D'Souza would be a profitable use of my time. So I haven't read one of his books. <laughs> what I picked up from him is basically what I pick up. Um, there, there's a historian named Kevin Cruz who I follow on Twitter, who's been in a sort of constant peeing match with D'Souza, which is amusing. And I've sort of gleaned, I think, the elements of D'Souza's arguments from there. So that said, um, you know, so the Nazis early on had a lot of anti-capitalist rhetoric, for sure. And if you look at um, uh, the, the so-called 25 points, the, the Nazi party kind of official agenda from 1920, a lot of it is anti-capitalist. Um, it sounds like it's coming from a left place. Like, you know, they're talking about um, profit sharing and big business. They're talking about better social programs, you know, better old age pensions, better educational opportunity for poor kids, um, uh, confiscating war profits, stuff like that. So there an, there's an element there where you can see the more kind of anti-capitalist, anti-elite element of Nazism. And so I, I, I think, I wouldn't want to swear to this, but I think what D'Souza is doing is sort of picking that up and saying, look, this is socialism. You know, this is anti-capitalism, this is socialism, this is the Nazis. So that's what they're about. And, you know, yeah, in theory, that's what they were about kind of until they were in power. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, once they're in power, big business does fine. And communists and socialists are in concentration camps. So, you know, you do the math. So, uh, you know, so it's, the argument is mostly nonsense with this little grain of truth that there were Nazis who did believe in the anti-capitalist part of the program, but they mostly got killed or driven out once Hitler came to power. And can the reverse be said? I, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not in the loop of all these conversations. So I, um, Maybe That's the funny. opposite of a Dinesh D'Souza, maybe a Dinesh D'Souza on the left could say that both of them were fascists. So technically, uh, the Soviet Union was not communism. It was fascism. Um, because uh, especially, I want to say, especially under Stalin, you could yeah. see a lot of fascist qualities in, in, in Stalin. Well, I'm about as much on the left as I am on the D'Souza right. So, um, which is to say not. So I think my... My answer to that would be it would probably depend on the kind of left person you're talking to. And I think, frankly, in my view, it would depend on how honest they are. Um, a left person, there, there are leftists who still defend Stalin. Uh, if you pick up Jacobin magazine, it's full of essays defending Stalin, which is, to my mind, about as morally bankrupt as defending Hitler. Um, I think there are more sane people on the left who, who then might make the argument that Stalin in practice kind of diverged into something that wasn't communism. And maybe they, I, I don't know if they would say it was fascism because there's still, there's some other kind of technical things that we think are inherent in the definition of fascism that Stalin probably wouldn't meet. More commonly, you know, you'll find the argument that it's totalitarianism and that totalitarianism is a descriptor for a kind of government that has the elements that Stalin's Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany had, none of which are particularly ideological. They're kind of structural matters of how persecution works. So that's the argument you're more likely to meet, I think, from someone kind of in the middle. That's actually more or less where I am, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think these distinctions are important and I think they speak to the importance of, you know, the power we attribute to certain words and, uh, the weight they 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 carry, um, and one of those words to me is the word well Nazi, right? Yeah, because yeah. I, I've I've heard over the last well since 
I went to college because before that I never really paid attention. But uh, since my time in college, I've heard a lot of people being called Nazis. And it, to me, it either comes from a place of historical ignorance because a lot of people that that might be the only thing they know historically. So they, they cite the Nazis whenever something bad is said. Um, uh, so are you concerned that the word Nazi or words that are similar to that have been almost co-opted and are being maybe overused? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think we have developed, and this is something that happens on both sides in American politics. We have developed a bad habit of using the words Nazi and fascist, basically, to refer to whoever we don't like in politics in a totally content-free way. You know, so, you know, 10 years ago or so, you had a lot of people on the right calling Obama a fascist or a Nazi, which is pretty ridiculous. A few years before that, people were saying it about George W. Bush, which is almost as ridiculous. He did have concentration camps in a sense, but still, I wouldn't call Bush a Nazi. Um, and it has only continued on into the Trump era. Um, what worries wait, me- wait, Sorry, sorry, can I, can I, uh, I apologize. I don't want to sure. interrupt your thought. Uh, the concentration camp point, uh, what, well, what are you referring Gitmo, to? Gitmo was a concentration oh, camp. Oh, okay, got you it. Know, or Abu Ghraib, these are basically concentration camps which Bush presided over. So there's that little piece that is a little bit, the embrace of torture, that's a little bit Nazi. But in a systematic sense, George W. Bush was certainly not a Nazi or a fascist. Um, nor was Obama. Um, probably, I would say, nor was or is Trump, if only because I just don't think he knows enough to be one. He just, again, he is who he is. Um, and it, it comes out as someone who kind of wants to be an authoritarian, but I don't think he understands that himself. Um, what does worry me a little bit is that the Republican Party now, weirdly post-Trump, is moving towards something that is at least authoritarian and anti-democratic, if not necessarily fascist, but it's moving, it's moving as a unit to something that is worrying. And it's, it's along a line that's leading maybe to something that you could fairly call fascism, even if it's maybe not quite there yet. Yeah, that last statement uh, actually leads me perfectly to my next question, which is, is, is that what you find most concerning in the world today? Or is there are there multiple things that you find most concerning? <laughs> I'm afraid there are many things I find concerning. Uh, you know, climate change is pretty concerning. Um, there have been a lot of things, but I suppose maybe right now, yeah, the drift to anti-democratic politics and in the United States of all places is something that I find. It's certainly right up there at the top of my worry charts, yes. Okay. And... Um because I don't want to not mention it. Uh, we, we've spent most of the interview talking about this book, right? yeah. The Death of Democracy. Can you explain to people the Nazi menace? Uh, why sure. did you decide to write it? And what is uh, what are you trying to prove or to say in your book? So that book actually came about um, after my wife read the first one. And my wife is not a historian. And I think it would be fair to say not incredibly interested in history. But she read The Death of Democracy kind of all the way through. I think it was on a plane ride. And then and she loved it. And she said, well, I want to read about what happens next. 
So I started thinking about that and I started thinking, what might I sort of do as a sequel? And so the, then I thought the thing that was interesting to me is how once Hitler was there, and once he's squarely in power, how did people respond to this? How did people in Germany who didn't like where he was leading them, how did they respond? How did people in the democracies respond, especially leaders? How did you know, British American governments respond? So that's basically the story of, of this second book, the, uh, the Nazi Menace. And the story I tell in a nutshell is that to my mind, what happens is, you know, you have to keep in mind that Hitler's regime is something that's really new. It, there hasn't been a regime like it in the world before. And a lot of the context is new. Um, the way war is going to be fought by the 1930s is new for you know, all kinds of technological reasons. And even democracy is new in a way because most of the major democracies of the world, including Britain and the United States, became much more democratic after World War I because many more people were able to vote, like notably women. Um, but also in Britain, um, the right to vote had up until 1918 still been tied to taxation and income. And, and that was changed so it was just citizenship. So you've got democ democracies like Britain and America with electorates that are two or three times as big in the 30s as they had been 30 years before. So it's a big deal. So how is all of this gonna shake out and how are people gonna respond to the threat that Hitler poses? And the, the sort of core thread that runs through the book is that I argue that as Hitler kind of confronts the democracies, he reacts against them by moving more and more to extremes and, and his Nazism really becomes more and more violent and ultimately genocidal as he kind of, in a sense, bounces off the democracies. And the same thing works the other way. The democracies who at first just don't know how to handle this guy and his regime, as they kind of bounce off him, in a sense, they start defining themselves and they start defining what a democracy means up against Hitler. You know, So I, I talk in particular about how FDR sort of starts to find that you know, um, democracy means social progress for everybody and it means Christianity. FDR really starts to kind of use Christianity and say that the, the principles of Christianity are the antithesis to the barbarism of Nazism. And, and this is also a way, of course, that he as a political communicator can sell you know, anti-Nazism to an electorate that's mostly Christian, but mostly not very excited about confronting Germany. So you know, FDR finds this way to pitch it. The British do something rather similar. And, and both countries find a language that really starts to foreground democracy and human rights as an antithesis to Nazism, which they would not have done 10 or 20 years before. You know, they, they would have made arguments about international politics in much different terms. So that's basically the kind of overall yeah. narrative of the book. And to that point, do we need sometimes, uh, it's almost weird to say, but do we need these kind of rude awakenings or these kind of people in the world, uh, like a Hitler, like a Stalin, to realize, well, in some ways, not to be a little too rah-rah about America, but um, that we're actually really lucky in yeah. a lot of ways. And uh, I think once, and I think the United States has shown that in many ways, right? So whenever we get attacked or somebody attacks our values, Americans are always wants to kind of step up and say, well, no, this is what we believe in. 
And for temporary, for, for a brief moment, it seems that we're all in this together. And then we go back to our petty, <laughs> petty fighting. Yeah. Um, I think that's absolutely right. You know, Churchill had a great line somewhere during the war. He said, uh, the United States can always be counted on to do the right thing after it has exhausted every other possibility, which is maybe about right. But, you know, I do think there is something to this. I think there's something about having a foil in the sense there's something about having out there a regime which embodies absolutely what we don't want to be, you know, absolutely what as Americans, at least we we imagine we don't want to be. Um, I really think that's important in actually kind of defining who we are. I think something like that happened during the Cold War too. You know, um, one of the things that scholars of America in the Cold War have pointed out is that there's a sort of relationship between um, the rise of the civil rights movement in the 50s and the Cold War because um, even people who didn't really care about civil rights like you know, President Eisenhower thought, you know, it's a bad look if we have racial segregation when we're trying to hold ourselves up as the beacon of democracy against the dictatorship of the Soviet Union. So we better like clean up our own house a little bit here. There was a lot of that, you know, and I think it's part of that process of like defining what it is that we want our democracy to be about. It kind of helps to have the adversary out there. I actually think probably that's a factor in, you know, in the last 30 years since the Cold War ended. I think that probably has a bit to do with why we're seeing, you know, nationalist political movements in democracies here, also in Britain, in Germany, elsewhere, um, because we don't have that foil in quite the same way since the Cold War has been over that we can define ourselves against. Yeah, I think after the the, cold, the end of the Cold War and after the Soviet Union fell, we had this, uh, to quote Francis Fukuyama, almost a... Uh, end of history mentality yeah, where right. that's it. The bad guys are done. Our yeah. job, our job here is done. We're going to go on to uh, figure out our own problems or whatever yeah. was yeah. the mindset. And you look out into the world now and there are definitely clear cut. Uh, I don't like the language, but I would call them adversaries or, or I don't want to call them enemies, but people that we don't want to emulate or countries we don't want to emulate. And that's, uh, maybe Russia, Turkey, China. Yeah. Maybe there are a few others I'm, I'm going to miss, but those are the three big ones. Why is that not having the same effect that a, well, obviously I'm not even going to mention the Hitler part, but right. the, the effect that the cold war had, because if we all of a sudden declare tomorrow that we're, we're in a cold war and in some ways we kind of are with China, mm -hmm. um, people are not going to all of a sudden hate communists, right? Because that's not what we associate the Chinese with. Especially now when they're Especially really now. Not. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, as I was saying my last thing there, I was afraid you were going to ask me this question. And uh, I mean, that, that's a very good question to which I'm not sure I know the answer, except that maybe I think those countries haven't taken shape yet as adversaries in the way that Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union did. Um, and they're certainly out there. They certainly seem, I hope to most of us, to be antithetical to our principles. I mean, the slight complication there is the odd relationship between the Trump Republicans and Russia in recent years. Um, I came across a picture a while back that I put on my Twitter feed of a couple of guys at a Trump rally wearing t-shirts that says something like, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. Which if you can imagine 
someone doing that during the Cold War <laughs> and what, what the reaction of conservative Republicans would have been. I mean, my God, look how far we've come. You know, um, so there isn't a consensus in America right now, as there isn't a consensus on most things, but I think there isn't a consensus on who the adversary is, certainly not with respect to Russia, which is highly deserving of being an adversary of ours, in my view. So is China, so is Turkey. Um, but I, I don't think any of those countries right now are looming on our radar screen, if you will, the way that um, the Nazis did, the way the Kaiser's Germany did, um, the way the Soviet Union did. You know, if they do in time, then maybe the silver lining in the cloud will be that we will redefine our democracy a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to finish up all my podcasts with the following two uh, questions. I'll put them into one in the interest of time, and then you can sure. answer in whatever order you prefer. Okay. Uh, the first question is, uh, what gives you hope for the future, if anything gives you hope for the future? I always like to mention that I did have a guest in the past who yes. had no hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, and the second is, what are five books on any topic, fiction, nonfiction, that you would recommend to anybody? Oh, wow. Okay. Let me take the first question, because I think that's probably easier. Okay. Um, there, I, I got two answers for you on that one. Um, this may sound sappy, but it's true. One is young people. As someone who works with young people, what I see in my students, I, I do think they're, they're going to lead us to a better place. Um, young people now are so much nicer than I was when I was in college or my friends were, frankly. Uh, so much less prejudiced, so much more open to things. Very idealistic. I, I think the coming generation is a much more idealistic one. My generation, I was young in the 80s, we were pretty jaded. Young people don't seem jaded to me now. Um, so that's one thing. And two, I was actually just reading something about this today. And despite everything I've said, I'm still optimistic about the United States. Um, and one reason is we are unquenchably individuals. And I think at the end of the day, I don't believe in authoritarian politics of any kind is going to succeed in the United States because Americans just won't buy it. Uh, we are probably the least likely people in the world to accept an authoritarian government because, and there is research that shows this, we are clearly the most individualistic. And even like some of the people who support Trump, if it came to a government telling them what to do, it would be, F you, Jack, I'm doing my thing. Like, get out of my face, you know? And in a way, I think there's hope in that. Um, okay, your question about books. Oh my God, I got to pick five. Yikes. <laughs> no, you could, you, could do, you could do more if you'd like, or less, yeah, whatever. We'll be, here, we'll be here all day. Let me see what I can do. Um, so I, I used to read, you know, I used to read, before I became a, a grad student in history, I used to read really widely on all kinds of things. And since I sort of devoted my life to history, I, I basically just kind of read history. But let me kind of go back to my earlier life. Um, one of the most powerful moving novels I've ever read, which I would recommend to anybody, um, is a book by a Canadian novelist named Timothy Finley. Uh, called Not Wanted on the Voyage. And it's a, it's a retelling of the story of Noah's Ark, but from the standpoint of Mrs. Noah and her cat, who are very humane and decent. I was gonna say people, obviously the cat's not a person, but you know, um, and in, the, in this telling, Noah and Yahweh are sort of bad guys, like authoritarian, patriarchal kind of dictators. And it's a kind of reversing in some ways of the story. Um, take too long to tell all of it, but it's, it's, a, it's a moving, heartbreaking, but also 
in a way uplifting book. Okay, um, for history stuff. Uh, okay, the book actually that kind of in a way made me want to be a history professor is uh, it's a book written a while ago, 40 odd years ago, I guess, um, by a guy named Paul Fussell, who was actually a literary, like an English professor at Penn. But he wrote an absolutely brilliant book called The Great War and Modern Memory, in which he talked about World War I, uh, especially the experience of British soldiers in World War I who wrote about their experiences, whether it was in memoirs or, or poetry. And Fussell um, writes about how these guys, the way they saw the war, and they saw the war very much in terms of what they had already read. They kind of saw the war in terms of English romantic poetry with larks and nightingales flying around and poppies everywhere. And they saw that stuff and they wrote about it because they knew that from the English romantic poetry tradition. But then in writing about the war, they transformed kind of our understanding of ourselves. And you know, to put this in terms we would use today, Fossil says it's kind of the birth of irony because these guys saw the war as this incredible ironic, you know, screw up. And there's a certain kind of um, uh, ironic skepticism of authority and of traditional values, which is rooted out of that experience. Uh, again, it's an incredible, brilliant kind of path-breaking book. Um, a history book that has had a huge effect on me, uh, uh, which I keep going back to, is a book by a historian named Tony Judd who died a few years ago. He had Lou Gehrig's disease. He died too young. I think he was in his 60s. It's a tragic thing. He was an absolutely brilliant historian. He wrote a book published in 2005 called Post-War, which is a history of Europe uh, since 1945. And the sweep and the analysis of what he does, the way he ties things together, you know, everything from uh, you know, how politics in, in Europe reacts to fascism, to, you know, what the new kind of refrigerator says about society. I mean, there's just so much that he deals with at a level of analysis. It's just so brilliant um, that I find it really uh, a compelling example of what a really great history book can be. Okay, that's three. I guess I better say, I better have something on here about Nazis, <laughs> given what I do. Um, uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm not sure how many people in your audience would this would be accessible for, um, but there's, there is an incredible memoir um, uh, published in the 70s by a guy named Max Furst. Uh, what's the point of this? Well, Max Furst was friends with a man named Hans Litten, whom I wrote a book about. Hans Litten was a young lawyer who dedicated his practice to trying to stop Hitler in the late 20s and, and early 30s and ended up paying the price for that in Hitler's concentration camps. Max Furst was his best friend. And years after all of this, Max Furst in the 70s, when Max was an old man, he wrote memoirs about his life um, growing up in Germany. Um, he was a, a, a Jewish socialist um, living in early 20th century Germany. Um, and the book is, is beautifully written. It's incredibly heartbreaking for all the things that, all the tragedies that Max first lived through. But it's also, despite everything he went through in old age, he was still a cheerful and optimistic guy. And the book also has that spirit too. So it's an incredible book. Um, it's actually, it is available in an English translation that's really bad. <laughs> if you go on Amazon, I, I know there's like a Kindle 
version um, of the English translation. The translation, unfortunately, doesn't convey the, um, the sort of beauty of what Max had to say. Um, but in German, the, uh, the, the book is called uh, Gefilte Fisch and What Happened Next. I can't remember what the English title is, but uh, uh, it's probably roughly the same in English. Gefil the, the Gefilte Fisch is in there anyway. Um, Max first, that's F-U-R-S-T, you with an umlaut. Okay, that's four, right? I got one more. Uh, <laughs> um, my goodness. Um, oh, yes. Okay, since so let's stay with Nazis for, for number five. So probably a lot of people have heard of Victor Klemperer, uh, who became quite well known in the 90s when um, his diaries from the World War II era were published. Victor Klemperer was um, actually a professor of French literature at the University in Dresden uh, when the Nazis came to power. He was religiously not Jewish, but um, uh, he had been born into a Jewish family. He married um, a, a Protestant woman and he converted. Um, but the Nazis didn't care about that. The Nazis persecuted him for being Jewish, but because he was married to a non-Jewish woman, that could be your kind of ticket to safety if you were a German Jew in that era. And so he survived the war. He was always in danger, but he survived. And he kept, he kept these diaries for which he's become famous. But what I actually think is in a way, a more interesting read than the diaries is a book that he wrote that he kind of took out of stuff he'd put in his diaries. The book is called LTI which is short for a, a Latin term that he would use to sort of obscure his meaning in case the cops found his diary. Um, LTI stands for lingua terzi imperi or language of the third Reich. And what it's really about is um, Klemperer picking apart the way the Nazis used language and the way they did their propaganda. And because he was a literary professor, he was very sensitive to the language. And what he has to say about how the Nazis used language, what he has to say about how their propaganda worked, the kind of messages they conveyed, you know, what they said when they were losing and how they would sort of use language to try and hide that they're losing. Uh, it's really brilliant. And actually, you know, even aside from the whole Nazi angle, if you're just interested in how language works, how language can be corrupted, how language can be used, it's just, it's a brilliant book on language. So LTI by Victor Klemperer. Okay, so off the top of my head, that's my list. Oh, I, I seem to have lost. Sorry, sorry. No, I, I, I was going to say you made it. So, okay. uh, <laughs> um, Benjamin, thank you very much for coming out to the podcast. Uh, here are your two latest books. I would highly recommend them. Thank you again. Okay, thank you, Stanley. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Yep, all the best. Okay, bye-bye.